Welcome to By the Sword, where we discuss the modern study of historical European martial arts, or HEMA, with instructors, experts and martial artists from all over the world. This podcast episode is a panel discussion before a live audience at By the Sword 2022, a historical fencing convention for women and gender minorities. The panellists are all instructors who taught at the event. They are Alex Austin, Amelia Skirment, Susie Cantrell, Lynette Nussbacher, Robin Saul, Shani Nishri, Joe Wimborne and me, Fran Laquata. The recording took place 9 April 2022. Recording, so behave yourselves. Um, so, by the swords, 2022. We've had... Woohoo! <laughs> We're finally here. Um, and we, as a sort of surprise for you attendees, uh, we thought we'd do a little uh, panel discussion. So you can ask us stuff. And there's... All of us here, eight of us, um, and we can answer your any of your questions you might have about swords. So we've got um, Joe Wimborne from Adel Fencing Academy, and we've got Robin from LHFC. Robin, forgot the surname. Robin Saul, Shani uh, Nishri from Stratford Swords. Hello. Uh, this is when my mind goes blank and I forget everybody's name. Alex Austin, also from uh, London Historical Fencing Club. Uh, Amelia Skirment from the School of the Sword. Uh, Lynette Nussbacher, also from the School of the Sword. And Susie Cantrell from Dublin HEMA. All the way from Dublin. So, uh, has anyone got anything that they want to ask? Who's this person? Oh, me. Yeah, I'm, I run the show. My name's Fran Laquata, also from the School of the Sword. Um, we love you too. Um, <laughs> has anyone got a question for our guests? How yeah. often should you practice? How often should you practice? I'm going to put that to... Is once a week at your sword club enough? Is once a week enough? Let's ask Alex. How often should you practice? N plus one. <laughs> For non-maths geeks, that is one more time than you already do. Um, honestly, don't push your body. Don't push your body beyond what it can do because it'll just be counterproductive. If you injure yourself, make sure that you rest properly and don't go sneakily to sword class like I did when I went with a concussion, which was a really bad idea. So don't be me, folks. Make sure you rest properly. Make sure you practice and practice in a way that is not going to injure you long term. Um, like with weightlifting, doesn't you can do weightlifting every day, every week, all too much, and you won't get anywhere. Mm. So make sure you plan your proper rest breaks in. Um, I want to ask um, Lynette about this because uh, we've had the pandemic. We've had all that sort of time off. And Lynette was one of the people who kind of pushed me for like... Uh, let's. How do we get our, our skills back? Because you were talking about skill fade. I want to know mm. your thoughts on that, on that topic. Yeah, I think that there is um, there are a lot of components to being a better fencer. One component is skills training and skills development. 
And that was why we had to get out there um, in the mud, yeah, outdoors November. in November and December during the pandemic being, being safe from passing disease to each other because we had to maintain skills. But speaking to the point about uh, uh, how much fencing practice should you do, in order to be a good fencer, you've got to have good nutrition, you've got to have good skills, you've got to have good cardiovascular, you've got to have good muscle development. And interestingly, when I wanted to improve my fencing, I did not add fencing practice, I added CrossFit. And I did that too. <laughs> yeah, which is a very Dublin thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> no. And, and, did, and did you go keto as well? No. All right. <laughs> Uh, so, so it is important but uh, to do the skills work and skills practice, and it's important to do it regularly and to keep doing it. But in addition to, say, a weekly fencing practice, you've got to do the other fitness as well, and you've got to time it all so that you're not knackering the same muscle groups every day so that you are developing the muscles, the cardiovascular, and the, uh, your fencing eye as well. And, and I'll add one other point, which is that there are other combat sports that use other muscle groups that develop coordination in different ways. So if you're going to add, don't neglect other combat sports that are going to add to your skills as a fencer. Uh, such as, well, here, here we run into, we run outside of my area of expertise, but if I were going to suggest two, I would, I would suggest looking at wushu because of the, derayed, uh, the, sorry, the direct blade applicability. And I'd look at kun tao because, again, there's kun tao with, uh, with bare hands, but kun tao at a certain level starts to bring in interesting weapons as well. And so that would be my answer. Susie, any thoughts on nutrition and um, mobility when it comes to... You know, okay, fencing. So... This so when Fran asked me to be on the panel, I was like, oh, don't ask me about swords, but you're asking me about stuff that's very much within my skill set. So the um, as we say in in CrossFit, don't cash, don't have your ego cash or you beware of your of your ego um, writing checks that your body can't cash. Um, so you're like, oh, again, we're getting into the how often should you train? So you're thinking, oh, I'm gonna. You can train every day, but you can't like say lift super heavy weights and do loads of fencing every day. You've got to, you know, either spend a day doing skills than, you know, lifting maybe. But on the subject of nutrition, so providing your body with the right nutrients is really, really, really important. Okay. I'm not saying don't eat sweets because like, you know, I, can, I hear the rustling sweet wrappers. No, like, no, like, come on. Okay, I know people. Um, people are only human, and we are just through a global pandemic. So, like, come on, you've got to be realistic. But you've also got to make sure that you're providing your body with the right stuff. So, like, if you're looking to develop muscle, uh, doing the training necessary for that is only gonna take you so far if you're not eating the right stuff. So like, if you're looking to gain muscle, I would say eat more protein. Um, 
I'm not gonna I'm not ever gonna tell anybody to cut carbs. I tried the ketogenic diet and I lasted two weeks and it was the longest two weeks of my life. <laughs> I also lot like it's also not good for everybody. You know, I have a friend who does it and he loves it and he thinks it's brilliant. I thought it was actual hell and I lost muscle mass. It is actually very effective for treating certain forms of epilepsy and obviously getting diabetes under control as well. If you have type 2 diabetes, it can be really good for that. And certain types of epilepsy. I don't know huge amount about that. But um, if you're looking to gain um, muscle, like increasing your protein intake and then, you know, because you're providing your body with the right, the building blocks and then sleep is really important as well giving your body time to recover the recovery time giving you know when you power down recharge it it's like okay so you say you have your phone right you're using your phone all the time your phone runs out of battery what do you do you plug it in we are no different your phone your battery is gonna run out if you keep going and don't stop so you need to plug in recharge sleep sleep is really important okay if you don't your body starts producing stress hormones which you know isn't good you know that can you're not giving those you're not giving your system a chance to recover you're kind of end up smashing your system over and over and over again each time you train you're forming tiny tiny little tears uh, in the muscles so it's, it's not like dangerous but your muscle needs to rebuild. So when you go to sleep, your muscle will rebuild itself stronger. And that's like how muscle development uh, happens. But I've gone on for ages. I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I kept down. Sorry. Are you eight I, minutes in? I, I you were going to add something there, Alex? Yeah, it was mostly just about ketogenic diet. Um, it can put stress on the liver and the kidneys. And you should absolutely check with your doctor first if it's something you wish to try. I generally don't like recommending it to people, partly because my partner lives with a uh, chronic condition. Yeah, I have yeah. a friend who, um, who does it and they find it absolutely amazing. I hated it, but you know, we're all different, so. Any more questions? Yes? Uh, what is a good way to get into reading the original sources? Good way to get into the original sources. I'm going to put that one to Shani. Hello. Um, so you can go on the internet, on uh, Wiktenau, for example. Uh, there are a lot of the sources over there. Varying quality of translation, but that's a really good place to start. And then, of course, um, just get Hema books. There are a lot of books with different translations, again, some with interpretations, some without. Um, but there, there's plenty ways to get in with it. Um, so something that like um, we always tell our students is that interpreting the book is almost a completely different skill to fencing but um, some people really enjoy it some people are like what on earth is this not for me but if it is something that you're interested in the best way to do it is paper in one hand sword in the other (laughs) Um, so kind of you read a sentence or two and then go okay what do I think this means um, with the context of what I've done before or just kind of start with no context, start with reading this sentence, what is it telling me? How do I interpret that? Try it out, try something else, get someone else to read it, 
see what they think, then take that section, go to YouTube, see what someone else has put a video out about how I do that thing. Because the thing with HEMA is like, we can have our best guess of what they're telling us. We can, some things are really straightforward. Like, of course, that's what it is. Some things we're never gonna know because everyone who knew is dead. <laughs> so it's all best guesses and don't always trust that what some instructor has said is the right way to do something is the right way like we're always all learning and developing this so like we can sit up here as people who have an more experience in something it doesn't mean that your interpretation is wrong it's just a different idea of the way to do something. So don't ever like kind of think, oh, just because this is how I think it is, it can't be right because someone else says something else. There's room for so many different interpretations and different things work in different circumstances as well. It's all a work in progress. Oh, can I add one more? Sorry. Um, just on top of everything Joe said, because that's all correct, um, try to remove your own biases because we all have opinions. We are very opinionated people. Um, <laughs> speaking from experience. This is an opinion, by the way. <laughs> um, but yeah, just be open-minded. You're probably wrong the first five times, 10 times, 50 times. And like Joe said, ask, ask other people, be open for it. And we, we will never really know. So we can only guess. Yeah, it's, it's all an approximation. Anyone want to add to that? No? So I mean one of the things we also have to realise at, at somewhere like by the sword is that you know this was a hobby created largely by men for men. Um, there is a little bit of diversity but there's not a lot so you've got to realise that the biomechanics of what they were writing about might not be work for you. Um, we in my Fiore class earlier, I mean Fiore would never have had to deal with a right-hander because right-hand, I mean not sorry, left-hander because to be sinister was to be sinister, so it would have been beaten out of you as a small child. This is modern day and age. You've got to figure out what works for you because what's in the manual might not work as it's written. So all the more power to you for taking the sword into your own hands and figuring out your own interpretation and what works best. Yeah, good point. Anyone else want to ask us? Oh, Amelia. You yes. drag the thing. Oh. So about uh, when it goes to the sources, uh, two points. One of them is probably start with the ones which have pictures <laughs> because it's easier. Uh, and uh, the ones with pictures, there is, there is several ones which, has, which have pictures, but there are also a lot which have only text, which is very complicated, and I'm looking at Mayer. Uh, <laughs> and I had a class uh, in my school when we took a bit of different uh, manuals and we just gave it to our students and told them to recreate it, like to play it. And we have one from uh, one play from Fiore and one from Meyer. <laughs> and the Meyer didn't go very well. Uh, so because it's very complicated to just uh, try to, uh, and that's there is there is a reason for that. Some manuals were written as actual manuals for. Uh, the patrons, so for example, for nobles, uh, to, uh, to, so they will be able to recreate that. But some other manuals were like advertisements. So some of them were written for, uh, to just 
for people to read it, but not really understand it. So they will come to my school to ask me about it. So they also pay me money to explain to them what I wrote there. So we need to remember about that, that each manual is, is a bit different piece of, of work, which also were, was written, uh, the intention that behind it was different. So some of them, again, are very concise, very well explained, because they were like the thing which was meant to be recreated. Some of them are these advertisements, which not always were uh, that well explained. So again, it's good to ask instructors or people who are specialized in certain uh, in certain styles, what is the best uh, best uh, manual to start with? And from there, you can build up. You can go to the ones which might be more complicated or are these little pieces which you need to uh, work around and figure things for yourself. So that's 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 my comment. Thank you. Good point. <laughs> Very good point. Thank you. Anyone? Question? Gideon. So I know a bunch of you study more than one weapon. Uh, what is the best way from your folks' experience, if, like, if you want to learn something and no one in your club's learning it, what's the best way to try and rally a study group to try and learn How do you start new? a study group? Anyone want to volunteer for that? Peer pressure. Peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I have an oblique answer to that. Okay. Here is my oblique answer to the question, how do you get your group to study something that you want to learn? And the answer is you offer to teach it. And this speaks to a, a principle which Fran has taught me, which is that if there's something you want to improve on, teach a class in it. And that won't necessarily improve it, but it will give you the starting point for understanding how to improve it. So the answer, I think, if there is if there's a book you want to be doing or a technique you want to be doing is uh, start by trying to teach it and uh, seek to build momentum that way but that is an oblique answer that is not the direct answer to your question um, yeah i had um a student like in my school we teach side swords as the uh, entry level not entry level but that's like the foundational weapon that we we study and then you go on to rapier other schools like in amelia's chapter the foundational weapon is longsword and then you go on to rapier um so there's different paths but longsword is missing from my school um and i had people going when are we going to do longsword when are we going to do longsword and that as an instructor that's kind of like that means i've got to learn how to do longsword so i can teach it to you but i've kind of reversed that and i was like if you want to learn longsword go and learn it and then teach it to us so that's what i like um you were saying peer pressure but you know if, if you really want something to be taught in your school go and learn the heck out of it go to your instructors like and say you know i want to start workshopping this see if they, they'll give you a chance to uh to run it because hell knows we all need more instructors in HEMA um, you know especially you know femme presenting people is what you know is really missing from um, the historical European martial arts community hence why we came up with this event um, so yeah just if you want to if you want to be be the change you want to see you want to see basically uh, someone else had their hand up earlier I guess on a related note, 
do you have any tips for how to re retain existing students and um, mm. How to retain existing students and enthusiasm. I'm going to pass the mic to you, Sean, because you... I remember one time when I interviewed you, and you said it's not, it, it's not getting people through the door that's important, it's getting them to yeah. stay. <laughs> How do we get them to stay? Yeah. Um, difficult question, because there are so many different aspects of what interests to different people. Uh, some people are just interested in, you know, playing with a sword and learning cool moves. Others are super focused on technique and fundamentals and getting all of the theory and physics behind it. While others are really interested in the sense of history and recreating what people did in the past. Uh, so you really need to figure out what you're trying to achieve in your class. Uh, and how much you're going to, um, oh, I forgot, I forgot the English word, but um, basically um, allow or expand beyond what your plan was. Um, so if people have more interest in the history, how much are you going to be able to satisfy that when your interest is in sparring and just doing techniques. So if you're trying to use it for recreation and learning new things and someone comes in and they really want to just spar all the time, how much are you willing to incorporate that in your classes? Mm. Um, but find what speaks to you to figure out what you're willing to do, being honest with yourself, because that's really important, being honest with ourselves. And then what speaks to your people and keep them enthusiastic about it. Also give them empowerment, um, encourage them to do their own stuff. So for example, maybe I focus more on longsword, but uh, someone comes into class for a while and they ask about uh, sword and dagger. And let's say I've never done sword and dagger. Maybe I can offer them study the subject and run a class on it. And suddenly you get them more involved. They have ownership of a part of the class and they help you out because now not all the work is on you. So that's great because having just one instructor in a class is going to be exhausting and potentially burn you out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, engage people, give them ownership, invite their ideas see what they want to do and bring more fit into class if you're willing. Don't compromise your own ethics, your own morals or your own fundamentals. Hmm. I think there is a danger of trying to please everyone, isn't there, yeah. when it comes to running a HEMA school. Um, you, wanna, you want people to stay. And I, when I interviewed Kerry last Sunday, she, she lit a light bulb in my head when she said, because we were talking about learning styles, and she said, but also people who've got different goals. Everyone's got a different goal. It's like, why am I in, in, in this? Is it because I want to win a gold medal? Is it because I really want to learn about this source? Is it because I just love the hell out of swords and I find sword fighting fun? Is it as simple as that? Um, you know, or as complicated as that? Um, you know, what, what is it that motivates someone? Is what you've got to find out about all your individual students. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go around people pleasing and changing your school and trying to fit in to everyone's desires. But you should be able to find something that will 
you know, have some kind of commonality between all those interests. So you can accommodate, you know, the people who want to study a particular thing, the people who want to spar a lot, the people who want to really dig into the sources. Um, anyone else got anything they want to add? And that's really what I mean by being honest to yourself about what you're willing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Don't compromise. Yeah. I think, like, what everyone else has said is really important, like, kind of figuring out what why people are there in the first place um something else which is also really important for kind of keeping people coming back is community building because like some people just the playing with swords thing will keep them coming back every week but there's some people who the swords are kind of secondary to the coming and being with people whose company they enjoy they enjoyed the learning the working together with people um, and if you can like build a community in your club with whatever your ethos is it's is it like we're gonna go to every single tournament and like win a load of medals or we're gonna go really in depth with this source whatever it is that you collectively end up working on if you're doing it together that's what keeps people coming back. What we found, um, we're running about halfway through running a beginner's course at the moment, and we've usually kind of kept the beginner's course separate from everyone else, but we found people's interest was waning a little bit. Maybe there were some people who weren't sure they were gonna stay, so we kind of integrated them in more with um, the rest of our students. And I think we're probably going to keep more people from that course because of it, because they've been, brought into a group of people who share their interests and are willing to help them develop to um, achieve the goals that they want. So don't underestimate the importance of it not just being people show up, um, do drills and leave. You're a group of people doing something together and that togetherness is really important as well. Yeah, I think in my school we kind of missed like we used to go to the pub after every session and I think for some people that is the best part about <laughs> was it an LHFC known as the, the yeah. drinking club the with a sword problem <laughs> so yeah the, 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 do not underestimate the social aspects um, like Joe said and um, friendship is just simply shared experiences that's all it is it's just sharing uh, going through the same thing together, um, you know, being in the trenches together, which is why you tend to find that when people start a HEMA class around the same time, they tend to form a very strong bond. Um, so, yeah. Anyone want to add to that? Retention? Attrition? It also builds trust. If you're friends with someone... Yeah, um, like, the, the friendship and community also builds trust which means when you're drilling with someone, if you trust that they're going to respond in the right way or go at the right um, like force level or speed for the drill, then you're going to get more out of it. You're going to learn more if you trust your um, training partner. Um, and so the community also builds that trust, which helps everyone learn more, which if you're learning stuff every week, you're going to come back every week as well. I just want to add something tangentially about LHFC, well, our experience, is that you've also, unfortunately, with any club, you've got to continually recruit. Because no matter how strong a community you build, no matter how much of a great um, 
development program you have for your fences, people's lives change. Change happens and you will always lose fences over time. People will move for jobs, people will move for love, people will move for life. Um, people have children, you know, things happen. And if you are not actively recruiting for your fencing club, your fencing club is dying. You've got to keep getting students in. You've got to keep um, turning that wheel, unfortunately, because, yeah, bringing new people into this is just how, unfortunately, sports clubs have to operate. And more ideas. And more ideas, yeah. Fresh pairs of eyes. Uh, any more questions? Yes. Silly question. What's the what? Engagement sort. <laughs> what's the best engagement, engagement sword? Yes. What, what's the sword would you use proposed to a fiance? Okay, uh, starting with uh, Amelia, she looks keen to answer this. <laughs> what's, what sword should Rob propose to you with? Well, I'm not sure why I'm answering this question, <laughs> but uh, I would say uh, probably sword with rings. rings. <laughs> <laughs> Side sword, maybe, with like very complicated... Uh... <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yeah, anybody else want to talk about engagement? <laughs> Get me a montante and I'll be happy. Yeah. <laughs> anybody else? Sure. <laughs> I think that there is a uh, an overlap between jewelry and really nice rapiers, and I know that my balefire rapier um, with with the uh, you know the, the the nice hilt and it's all very shiny. I know that I think of it as a piece of jewelry, and I think of it as dressing up my hand, and I can stab people with it. So let me just say that that any really nice sword tailored to the person who you're buying it for that signals that you understand them is better than some frickin' blood diamond from Africa. Actually, that's, that's, that's what I was gonna say. Um, like, look at, think about what your part, like if you're looking to propose, think about what sort of, so what their taste is, what weapon they train with. Like there's no point in like, get them on montante and they're like oh but you know i've never picked up a montante what i i trained with a rapier why did they get me a montante but it's a really nice montante okay that's that's great but if you know if you look at somebody and you know they train a ra with a rapier like oh, i'm gonna get them the nicest rapier ever but it's gonna be so i'm gonna try and get it sort of get it so it suits their personality something that says like I know the kind of stuff that you like because I've paid attention to you. I like I I look at everything that you like and this is this is a manifestation of what I think that you will love and you know with an engagement ring they're going to be wearing it all the time. Okay, they're not going to be carrying a sword all the time because you know stupid laws don't let us do that. <laughs> but something like where they'd be at an event or at at practice and they pick they pick up the sword and like this is my special sword that you know shows how much my partner loves me and they run into spar like if you're getting them a sparring sword like they're really happy to be using it something like that whatever doesn't matter what type of sword it is if it's the type of sword that they will absolutely love 
I'm seeing their, you know, the Russian going, oh my God, I'm going to like stab you in the face with my engagement sword. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On that note, um, for Valentine's Day, my partner got me a spadroon. So it's not an engagement spadroon, it's just a Valentine's present, but uh, he knew that I wanted to learn sabre and I was really struggling with... uh, the weight of the saber even though i do like loads of other stuff it's just because it uses a different set of muscles and um and i wasn't sure so he like you say he knew what i was into he knew what i wanted so he got me a spadroon which i was very happy with um much better than um a piece of fancy jewelry from uh, exploitation and all the rest of it um any more questions yes sally how important would you say attending tournaments is the process of learning how important are tournaments for the process of learning fencing, Amelia? I knew that. Okay, that's, that's the question I can answer. Uh, <laughs> so, um, it depends what you want to achieve. Again, different people have different goals. Uh, and tournaments is some completely different set of skills, really. Uh, than just training and drills and what you do during classes, even sparring. In sparring, there is not as much pressure as in tournaments. Uh, And some people like this pressure, for example, me. Uh, But uh, for some other people, it is too much and you need to get used to it. Uh, So it might help with with, uh, some skills, like, uh, for example, uh, like, your concentration on the fight uh, and uh, being like, but probably in in tournament you won't use all these fancy moves you learn during classes because again uh, that's that's something that's very different uh, environment I would say than than what you do uh, just during during simple classes uh, but again every now and then when you manage to do this fancy move like disarm somebody or punch them in the face <laughs> uh, it's not allowed don't do that don't do it <laughs> don't don't you can get disqualified or not uh, only between consenting adults <laughs> yes so if you manage to do it it's always it's also always fun and it's it's uh, again it depends if pressure works for you uh, if you like pressure if it helps you develop uh, because not everybody is like that and quite a lot of people who train uh, train uh, sword fighting are not really into Tournaments, especially that most of the tournaments which are out there are open tournaments with uh, people with big egos. And yes, and uh, they might be not very nice sometimes because of adrenaline and that's completely fine. Uh, as also when you uh, judging tournaments, uh, you uh, should be used to fences being rude to you obviously you can be rude back uh, and that's again i'm trying to be understanding because that's adrenaline and adrenaline does weird things to people people's brains and many times uh, fences then come back after after the fight when they behaved like total 
twats. Uh, they come back and then they apologize because they just realized that they, they behaved in a, in a very weird way. But again, adrenaline can also do different things to people. And in tournament, there is a lot of adrenaline. Uh, yes. So, so again, uh, it good, it's good to try tournaments to see if that works for you, especially novice tournament if you are new. Uh, and and just just see how it how it how it goes, and then if you like it, then you might go further again to uh, to like steel tournaments and and even open tournaments. I'm always encouraging all the uh, all the people to join uh, to join the uh, open tournaments because right now they're just saturated with all these all these uh, men with egos. Uh, <laughs> no one wants to go in there. Mm, yeah, yeah. All these, all these middle-aged white men. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but that's 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 my answer. I think that you want Alex, to say something. Yep, if that's okay. Um, I want to give a very positive view of tournaments. I think that like you should have a balanced diet or balanced workout routine. You should also balance your HEMA training with looking at sources, doing a little bit of class doing some fitness work, going to do free play, and also going to do tournaments. Because it's a nice way of sort of simulating, you know, how there's a little bit of pressure on things. Yeah. And it's nice to put pressure on your fencing style every once in a while. However, it's part of a whole. And like, also, I remember I was, I, I, I had a thought about the first question as well, which is what should you do outside of fencing lessons to help improve your fencing? One of the things that actually improved my fencing more than going to tournaments, more than reading sources, more than uh, doing anything else was attending dance class. So I danced when I was a kid. I um, stopped doing it for a good long while and I went and learned how to do Charleston and swing dance and things like that. And that'll help your footwork far more than any tournament ever will. So it's about looking at what it's doing for you. And tournaments are great at putting pressure on your fencing, putting pressure on your style. And when you can pull off that magical moment, it's absolutely satisfying. Mm. You go for it. That's just brilliant. So, Robin? Um, so just one last thing about tournaments that isn't really about the fencing itself is the local tournaments that I have been to here have been one of the best events for creating a sense of community within HEMA. Um, I have made wonderful friends by attending tournaments. Um, it's an opportunity to see people I care really deeply about on a regular occasion and fight them with swords, um, which is awesome. So there is so much that can be positive about going to a tournament as long as you're going into it with the right attitude and the right goals and that might not be winning that might just be seeing your friends and having a really fun time um it's entirely up to you but once again also tournaments not your thing tournaments are not your thing just enjoy him the way it is for you um yeah i want to add um don't feel you have to do tournaments as part of your rite of passage. If it really doesn't appeal to you, then don't. If you think that might be the thing I need, or I, you don't, you know, don't just cave to peer pressure because everyone else is doing it. Uh, you'll have a really rough ride if you do that, because your expectations will not be what what is actually going to happen. Um, 
Hmm? Sorry, am I too quiet? Um, it's alright, it's recorded. You can hear it, listen to it later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, don't, don't, don't think that just because everyone else is doing it, I have to do it. But at the same time, don't dismiss it completely as a, a waste of time because it is the closest you're going to get to a real fight. Uh, even when you're f- doing free play, there's still an element of um, collaboration. Cor- yeah, collaboration. Yeah, collaboration. So you're working together. Points don't matter. There's nothing in it. There's no skin in the game uh, unless you've got an enormous ego and uh, all the rest of it. Yes. So I have a question about like the ego tournaments so yeah. in some sports you have weight banding for competitors yeah so like um people that are heavier or taller or like more muscle mass yeah. will be like fighting together in their weight place. categories yeah yeah why isn't there that in HEMA I think it would I think more I would certainly feel a lot easier signing up to compete in open tournaments I've taken part I yeah was, like not against Enormous hulking six foot dudes. Yeah. I did. Is that what happened in Scotland? Okay. Um, I took part in an event in 2014 where they did have weight categories. They were very broad brackets, but um, so it was me and uh, several very skinny tall guys um, <laughs> doing dagger. It was a, it's a the dagger tournament was weight had a, had weight categories. It was only that and the wrestling and everything else was just open, I think. Um, and it was fun, and you know I ended up on the podium with these two very tall skinny guys. Um, <laughs> and it, it's it does give you uh, like you say a shot at it. It's, it's more it levels the playing field. Um, why that doesn't happen is because as organisers it's it's more work uh, but I think when people do make the effort to have uh, weight categories it really does open things up for people um, Millie you look like you want to add something yes, to that I do I do I do want to add to that uh, so with martial arts and also with fencing because fencing uh, we like it or not is a martial martial art uh, we should be able to fight any like any size of the opponent really because that's why that's why these things were developed like these systems to be able to fight people who are heavier who are uh, taller who are stronger than you as well especially with swords swords gives you this uh, this tool which with which you can you can fight bigger stronger opponents uh, and also on the on the battlefield you weren't just choosing oh this guy is the same weight as me so i will fight with him so all these systems were developed to do uh, to to be able to fight different kinds of people uh, and obviously tournaments are not battlefields well it can feel like it sometimes uh, but uh, it's also a test of your skills at least that's I would see it that way so uh, so uh, <laughs> I will just finish and I will give it to you it's a uh, it's a test of your skill and uh, if you would be fighting uh, in some ways like with wrestling probably with with dagger maybe because there is some some like element of wrestling in that because that's very close play uh, these weight categories make sense i don't see that uh, in uh, in sword fighting itself 
But but that's that's for me. Uh, I think that Shani was next. Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, just to add, and on a previous question that was about the sources, uh, one of the sources explicitly says we know this is an art because it's not the stronger one who always wins. It's the person who has a better technique. And sure, if a person is much stronger, taller, sometimes more than stronger, have a long reach, they may have some physical advantages, but hopefully we can train to, you know, counter these advantages with our skill, with our technique, with our art, and have some fun doing that, you know, like if we are always uh, battling at an even field, we're not getting necessarily the right challenge we need. Sometimes we need unevenness to improve ourselves, to learn, okay, how do I fight tall people? How do I fight big, strong people? What do I do? Like I, I had uh, an experience when I started out where someone was so much taller than me and all he did was drop his sword on my head. Maybe I need to defend that somehow. <laughs> um, and what do I do next? So... Yeah, maybe there was some leveling of the playing field. I mean, I can't say there isn't, but there is also a question of what do we want to achieve. And maybe a tournament setting isn't the, the setting to get it. Maybe it's more in class, in free play, but that again comes back to the question of should you go to tournament or not? And there's also, unfortunately, a practical consideration to this. So weight categories in wrestling and things like that and weightlifting and all of that, they're designed for athletes, people who are in peak physical format, people who are used to cutting for weight classes. Um, if you're doing it in what is functionally an amateur sport, um, there is a level of size discrimination that will happen if you're going based on weight classes and that can be extremely unfair to certain people, which, you know, is something we're obviously trying to counter. And weight isn't strength, weight isn't muscle. So I can be 60 kilograms of fat or 60 kilograms of lean mass, and it, it's going to be very different. So, when I started doing HEMA, it was, um, so when I started doing HEMA, it was myself and a few friends in, a, in an incredibly part, dodgy part of Dublin um, training, like, and I say dodgy part of Dublin, we did end up in a situation, because we were also a reenacting group, where police cars used to pull up, drive around the car park where we were sparring, sometimes pull out and just ask us a couple of questions and then they'd drive off and it would be fine um but i was the only i was the only woman there only woman femme presenting like um you know there were there were like you know there were the rest were all men they were all you know stronger bigger than me to the point where and i just got used to fighting opponents that were stronger than me all the time um, and it got to the point where I started going, we started going to international events um, and I started meeting other women and femme presenting people who <laughs> did HEMA, who were, you know, maybe 
the same strength level as me. Maybe I was stronger than them. And I didn't know what to do because I was kind of like, wait, I'm not, I'm not, this person's the same height as me. I'm not necessarily trying to close the distance, get under their feet, make it more difficult for them by closing in. And it forced, I suppose in my case, I was forced to rethink how I fought and how I how I adjusted the movements to suit my um, height and stuff because I was, you know, fighting Fran, who I'm actually, and like, I was like, what do I do when I'm taller than the person I'm fighting? Because that had never happened to me before. <laughs> you know, so it's, I suppose in our case, we're, we're probably, f we're fighting like people who are bigger than us, but we're also fighting people who are smaller than us. So there's a lot of room for interpretation and trying to kind of figure out, well, how am I going to deal with this? But that's also, it also does come down to your level of, there is a risk because we are fighting with swords. There is a risk and there is a certain amount of risk assessment and nobody's going to tell you nobody can tell you what amount of risk you're okay with you know you have to decide that for yourself you know i think also i may weigh 80 kilos but i'm 55 years old i think we need age classes <laughs> so unfortunately a lot of people that advance the argument of weight classes in hema both ignore the fact that the sword is an equalizer. It is, it is a, it is a weapon of skill. And I'll say that from when I started doing HEMA, I think five, six years ago, I am 186 and I weigh more than I would care to admit. And a lot of that is muscle mass. And yet Fran, how many times did you take me apart at Waterloo Sparring Group with your sword and buckler and you weigh probably less than 50 kilos soaking wet? Oh, <laughs> Small death. Small death. Death from below. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and how, how much of the inside of my leg was black and blue? Well, you shouldn't leave it there. <laughs> and Amelia, how many times did you steal my sword in the first Wessex? I don't know, I still have all your swords. <laughs> so, to a certain extent, weight, weight class or muscle mass or speed is not a relevant part of it because none of us are in that peak physical con condition. Except Fran and Amelia. And, <laughs> and we're not all like Fran and Amelia. I know. And then also, on the it's other side of it, you need to get you need to train people out of the habit of swinging for the houses because that's how you get concussions is people that fence in a way that is uncontrolled and that is where we start having issues and that's a huge part of safety in hema fencing so so unfortunately as part of this uh, um, a rather unfortunate section of the community has advanced weight classes rather than gender division um, as a form of transphobia, which is not, and I, would, and I would strongly argue, being stronger, being taller, being bigger, in no way gives you an advantage to a certain extent. When you start getting skill catch-up, skill equalization, 
yes, you can start making arguments about that, and technique plays a far greater part of it than the body mechanics and having, I've got long limbs, I've got more reach, etc. Um, if we ever do tournaments where we wrestle to the ground, I'm fucked, because my center of gravity is somewhere up here with my tits. <laughs> so like, you know, anybody that's like half a head shorter than me is gonna put me on my ass. Again, your mileage may vary. <laughs> We're all fulcrums to you. Um, are you gonna say something, Joe? Um, so like everyone's made some really good points about like weight not being the, the best way to do it. But going back to ego in tournaments, like I'm a really, I'm a really small person. And I know that yes, I can be more skilled than someone I might be faster than someone, I might have some things, but I have made the choice not to enter open tournaments because I've weighed the risk to myself and gone, concussion risk is probably too big for me. I love entering um, the women's tournaments. I'm using women in inverted commas because I'm non-binary. <laughs> um, but like... I enjoy testing my skills in a pressured environment, but I make the call for myself of this is what I want to do, this is what I'm prepared to risk. But also as a tournament organiser, as a fencing judge, it's on us to make the open safer. It's on us to call out people who are swinging for the fences, who are hitting too hard who are using the fact that they're six foot tall and built like a brick shit house to squish people into the ground when they don't need to. Um, at the end of the day, it's a tournament. It's not a fight to the death. Um, and it's supposed to be fun. Yeah, it's supposed to be fun. And you have to make your own calls on what you find fun um, and where your line in the sand is. But also, as a community, I think we've got work to do in changing attitudes, bringing egos down. Um, and that comes from everyone. It comes from within our clubs when we're doing free play. How do we approach it? What do we let people get away with? And then you go into a tournament where the adrenaline levels are so much higher when there's stuff on the line, when you want that medal. People are always going to go a bit harder. There's always going to be people who just something has gone and the control isn't quite there but we need to call those people out as soon as possible and rein it back in and that's on all of us to make make it fun and keep it fun for everyone yeah i just want to so joe's made some wonderful points and she is dead right and she deserves a round of applause <laughs> apologies apologies um I also want to just quote Kaya Sadowski, um, who said that it is a truth that sharp swords are a force equaliser. Unfortunately, we fence with blunt swords and blunt swords become force multipliers. So you have an individual responsibility to look after the person that you're fighting with, because if you want to fence them again, be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Be nice. So much this. <laughs> and I think that is a perfect place to wrap up. Um, be nice because we're about to go and do free play now so thank you everyone I'll thank you to my panel and thank you for your wonderful questions thank you everyone well done so
hope you enjoyed this podcast. To show your appreciation, please give us a five-star review on your podcast platform or support our work by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash swordwomen. Go to at swordwomen on Instagram to see upcoming interviews or visit bythesword.net to learn about our events or visit our Facebook page, By the Sword.